Y'all, that's Cindy Senator. Doesn't she do a great job? And praying our prayer this morning with Jake Mode, second-year staffer uh, from Ellenboro, Forest City, North Carolina area. Anybody know where that is? This group's from Gastonia. Do y'all know where that is from Ransor? Kind of in between, near Shelby, that area. So where'd Jake go? What's you close to, Jake? Hour west of Charlotte. And I lived in Gastonia for 15 years. People in Charlotte made fun of people from Gastonia. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And just to kind of catch you up while you're finding 1 Thessalonians, I've preached through Colossians. And if you're interested in going back and kind of catching up, you can do that on iTunes or through our website. Hear every message. But we're in chapter 3 now of 1 Thessalonians. So just to give you some context. The beginning of Thessalonians talks about Paul, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy. So the letter to the church of the Thessalonians was written by Paul and Silas and Timothy, mostly by Paul. But they were with him when he wrote the letter, probably from Corinth. But Paul had been in Thessalonica. He had started the church there. He had been attended by Silas and Timothy. He had helped him to start this church, launch this church. But persecution came. In fact, a group of people came to Jason's house, and you're thinking, who's Jason? We don't know, just somebody that probably Paul was living in his home at the time. They were going to drag Paul out and probably stone him. So Paul escaped the death that he would have had at Thessalonians, but here's the problem. He doesn't know what's going on back in Thessalonians. And so just like a parent, if you've ever dropped a child off at school, college has started back. So if you've dropped your child off, your son or daughter at college, you're going to keep up with them, right? What if there was no way to keep up with them? You've dropped them off. It's been months since you've heard from them. There's no Internet. There's no FaceTime. There's no cell phones, any kind of phone. There's no telegraph, no pagers. The only thing you've got is maybe sending a letter that may take months to get there. That's the condition that Paul was in in Corinth, concerned as a parent for his children because he was a spiritual father to the church of the Thessalonians. So let me read just the first few verses of chapter 3, and we're going to get through chapter 3 this morning, but I've entitled this a maturing church. And if you're a parent, you want to see your children grow up. You don't want to see them in diapers and eating baby food their entire life. Now, some of us are like, I wish I could keep them that small. Well, no, you really don't mean that because you want to see them grow up. And so that's what Paul is concerned for the church. So let me read verses 1 through 5 of First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer... We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been de destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer afflictions. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So first we see Paul's concern for the church. So it's been months, many months. He's, writing, he's written a letter, but what's happened in the interim is Timothy has gone to visit the church of the Thessalonians. And he's gone to encourage them. He's gone to strengthen them. He's gone to find out about their faith. Well, now he's reported back to Paul. And so Paul's writing just an honest message to the church of the Thessalonians. And it starts off with the word, Therefore, well, therefore, you go back and realize 
Paul says in verses 17 and following of the previous chapter, we're not there anymore. We were there in spirit, but we're not there in person, and we're concerned for how you're doing. But Satan has hindered us from coming back. Paul says in chapter 2, I've tried to get back to, to Thessalonica. I want to encourage. I want to check on my children in the faith. But Satan has kept throwing hindrances and roadblocks in the way. And so he sent Timothy finally after many months, and he says, we could endure it no longer. The word literally means to roof over. It means to put something over it to silence it. So Paul's saying there's nothing I could put in my heart or over my life to silence my concern for the church at Thessalonica. And so when I can endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. So Paul's not in Corinth yet. He made the decision in Athens. And most scholars think Silas was also somewhere else. Paul was alone, even though he uses the word we. But Paul says, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. As valuable as Timothy was to me, a brother in the faith and a great servant of the Lord, it was more important that we send him and me be left alone in Athens. And by the time Timothy gets back to Paul, they're in Corinth. So we send him, our brother, to do two things, to strengthen and encourage you. The word strengthen means to set fast, to confirm, to support, and then encourage. There's that word I mentioned last week, paraclete. It means one called alongside of. Timothy's there to encourage you up close and personal, face to face. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, one sent from God to minister to us, to be Jesus, so to speak, with skin on. And we can be that for one another. For folks who need encouragement, we can nowadays send an email, send a text message, call them, do FaceTime and all that. But there's nothing like being face to face to not only hear the voice but to see the reaction to what's going on. So Paul said, I couldn't endure it anymore. I sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you. And here's the good news for us. That's what Jesus has done with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life, part, a person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's not an it. It's part of the Trinity, a person of the Godhead. And so he is resident in a believer's life to do that, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to establish us, to help us as we read the Bible. Many ministries of the holy spirit but paul says he sent timothy and he sent him not only to strengthen encouragement to check on their faith their their faith meaning persuasion moral conviction little difference between truth and faith or trust and faith is this you all walked in here and sat in a chair right did anybody check that chair to see if it would hold you i didn't see anybody do that You're, you didn't do that have you ever gone to sit in a chair that wasn't there when you went to sit in it you ever sat in a chair that broke well, I had a brother five years older than me, and he would do things to me occasionally. And I should have had sense enough to know when your brother says, hey, come sit here, and he's still holding the chair, and he's five years older than you, ch chances are that chair's not going to be there when you go to sit down in it. Well, that's about trust. Trust is what you can see. The evidence of faith, according to Hebrews 11, is faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So Paul says, I've sent Timothy to check on your faith, and faith beyond trust is something that has changed the lives of the Thessalonian believers. So he said, I've sent him to check on your faith so that no one would be disturbed by the afflictions that you yourself know we're destined for. Paul, when he was there, said, we are going to face persecution. We're going to face trials. There's going to be times that we suffer. And I don't think he's just talking about we, meaning Paul, Timothy, and Silas when they're gone. But even the church of the Thessalonians shouldn't be caught off guard by the fact we have a very real enemy who wants to see us flounder, who wants to see us not come to faith in Christ. More on that in a minute. Paul said, we kept telling you in advance, 
Does it help you when you go to the doctor for the doctor to say, now this may hurt a little bit, this may sting, maybe you're having a tooth worked on and so they're going to give you some Novocaine so before he puts the needle in your mouth, this may sting, or you may feel a little pressure. It helps you a little bit, although I had a doctor tell me one time right before he did something, he said, this is going to hurt like the Dickens. You ever heard that phrase, this is going to hurt like the Dickens? I'd heard it before. I didn't know it was a medical term, that it's Latin for hurtius maximus, because it hurt more than a Dickens. I don't know what a Dickens is, but it was beyond that. It hurt. The thing I've heard all my life growing up is I'd rather do this than have a root canal. (laughs) I'd rather have a root canal than to do that. You know, I finally had a root canal and found out, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought because I had prepared my mind that this is going to be the worst experience of my life. So Paul had prepared them, hopefully, to understand suffering is going to come. It's part of our destiny. It's part of the fact we're believers, and so you may suffer the loss of friends. You may suffer the loss of a job. You may suffer the loss of your freedom. And for some, they may suffer a beating or even their very lives. So Paul says, I've sent Timothy to strengthen you. Because you know we're going to suffer persecution. You know we're going to suffer affliction. And it has come to pass. For this reason, he says it again, I could endure it no longer. So I've sent Timothy to find out about your faith. To find out how are you doing? Have you passed the test? Are you still walking with Christ? Because he said, I had a fear that the tempter may tempt you. And our labor would have been in vain. Paul said, my concern, my great concern is for you. But I want to make sure that all those months that we spent in Thessalonica and all the months we've spent since then praying for you and concerned for you, that it hasn't been empty, it hasn't been meaningless, it hasn't been worthless. The tempter. Let me, let me tell you what the tempter does. The tempter is the devil, the enemy. And here's his mode of operation. He wants, first of all, to make sure that you never hear the gospel. So his mode of operation is he'll keep you from places where the gospel is going to be shared. If he can't keep you out of church, and here, here's how... You ever been invited to church? Maybe before you became a Christian, somebody invited you to church. Maybe a neighbor said, hey, we're having something special at our church. And as soon as they invited you, the thought that went through your mind is, I'd rather have a root canal. That's the enemy keeping you from a place you need to be because you're going to hear the gospel message if you're there. So Satan, first of all, wants to keep you from hearing the message. If he can keep you out of those places or if he can distract you while you are there. Man, I used to probably be one of the distractions that that the devil used when I was younger because I like seeing people laugh. I'd make jokes during the service. Pastor finally called on me one time, and I thought, he he can actually see out there. People think the preacher can't see what's going on, but we can. So Paul says, I'm concerned the tempter may have tempted you, and one of the first things the tempter does is keeps you from hearing the word of God. Now, once you've heard the word of God, his second operation is he'll keep you from responding to the word of God. And here's how he does that. Oh, I'll do that later. I call that white knuckling it. That's where you're standing up during the invitation and you've got the pew or the chair in front of you and you're just saying, I'll do this later. You sense God's tugging at your heart. You're overwhelmed with conviction. God's drawing you to himself and yet you are gripped. You've got a death grip on the chair or the pew in front of you. And you're, you're convincing yourself, well, I'll do this later. Let me, later. Let me think this over. Get, I'll get back to you later. He'll keep you from responding by not giving you an opportunity to respond. Perhaps you've heard the gospel message, but you didn't understand what to do at the end of the gospel message. Or comparing yourself to others. I'm concerned there's going to be a lot of people show up in heaven one day, and God's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Or why should I let you into heaven? And you're going to look and say, well, you let him in. (laughs) You let her in. 
It's not a comparison game. God doesn't grade on the curve. It's have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, not are you better than somebody else or worse than somebody else, or by keeping you satisfied with religion. I think some of the reasons some people never respond to the gospel message is they use the mentality of, well, hey, I'm a church member. I've gone to church all my life. I know this. I know that. But if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you could be a member of every church in the world. It hadn't brought you to faith in Christ. So he keeps you from hearing the word. He keeps you from responding to the word. He keeps you from growing in the word. Here's how he does that. He keeps you away from Bible study. I think some people think, well, hey, I've joined the church. I've been baptized, and you truly have come to faith in Christ. But you may be like me. I I was baptized when I was 12 years old, not because it was a magical age, but that's when I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And here's the only comment I got after my baptism. I remember one man saying, that's the most important decision you'll ever make. And he was right. But nobody said, here's how you grow. Read your Bible. Start with the Gospel of John. Get involved in a small group. Come to Sunday night service and be a part of a discipleship ministry. So if he can't keep you from hearing and responding, once he's lost you, so to speak, he wants to keep you from growing. And that was really what Paul was concerned about. He knew the church of the Thessalonians was, they had come to faith in Christ, but he's concerned with how are they growing and are they growing. So he'll keep you from growing by keeping you away from serious Bible study or thinking you're okay where you are. That's enough. You know, I don't want to get over religious. I've trusted Christ. I've been baptized. That's all I really need to do. You will spend the rest of your life in misery if that's all you ever do because you're not growing in Christ. You're, you're staying in the nursery, playing with building blocks, eating baby food, and wearing spiritual diapers. Or he'll keep you satisfied with religion. You're going to notice that theme repeats itself. If Satan can just keep you satisfied with religion, just being religious, then he'll keep you from growing. The last thing Satan does is he tries to rob you of the joy of your salvation. How does he do that? Satan will bring sin into your life. He'll tempt you. You yield to it. Here's how Satan works. He dangles something in front of you and says, this is great. This is going to make you happy. This is going to make you more popular. This is going to make you a better man or woman. And as soon as you yield to it, then what does he do? Oh, God's mad at you. You better go hide. He's got a big stick. He's about to hit you with it. And so Satan will make you run from the very God you need to run to. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid from God, as if you can actually do that. God knows everything, right? God knew where Adam and Eve were. So when he walked through the garden, he wasn't screaming at the top of his lungs, Adam, where are you? He was saying, Adam, why are you hiding from me? Because I can find you, but come out from where you're hiding. Run to me, not from me. So Satan will keep you, rob you of the joy of your salvation by making you run away from God or causing you to doubt your salvation. I heard a preacher one time say, if you've ever doubted your salvation, it's because you weren't a Christian. Well, I think Satan will make you doubt your salvation if you are a Christian. Why? Because it robs you of the joy of your salvation. So what do you do? You go back to the truth, not the feelings. You go back to the truth. Have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there been a moment in time where you've turned from your sin and turned to a God who loves you and trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Or Satan will just make you satisfied with religion. He'll rob you of your joy by having you plug into religion, which is dead, which will rob you of your joy, which will just make you overwork yourself in church with no power behind it because you're not walking in the spirit, you're walking in the flesh. So that's what the tempter does. He'll keep you from hearing the word of God. He'll keep you from responding to the word of God. If he can't, if he can't win that, he'll keep you from growing in, in faith. And then last, he'll try to rob you of the joy 
of your salvation. So the bottom line is, Paul said, I was concerned that we had done all this work in vain, that our labor had been in vain. So Paul received good news from Timothy. Let's look at the good news, verses 6 through 8. But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. And now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So Paul received good news. This is better than saving a bunch of money on your insurance. It was literally good news. In fact, it's that word euangelion, which every other time in Scripture is translating the gospel message, the gospel message of salvation. When the angels on the hillside said to the, to the shepherds, we bring good news, they were saying euangelion. Paul uses it here. The only other time in the New Testament that it's used for something other than salvation message is good news. Timothy has brought us good news. He's brought us good news of your faith. I thought about that this week. What did Timothy see in the believers of the Thessalonians that let them know their faith is strong? Well, they were passing the test. They were still walking in, in faith. It had been months since Timothy had been there, maybe a year or more. He walks back into the church, and they're still growing in faith. They're still placing their trust, their hope, their foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's brought us good news of your faith, and that is you've stood the test. So let me ask you this. If I followed you around, would I see evidence of your faith? Think about that. If somebody just followed you around, would they see evidence that there's something different about you than the rest of the world? And it's more than just religion. It's more than just the fact you were at youth camp or you went to church on Sunday. It's that there's a real Jesus that's impacted your life and changed you forever. So Timothy saw evidence of their faith. He also evidence, saw evidence of their love. Faith has expressed their belief in God. The love he talks about is God's kind of love, zoe, not just, no, excuse me, agape. We'll get to zoe in a minute in his life. But agape, the kind of love that God has for you, you can only have by God using you and having that love in you. It comes from God. It's unconditional. It's agape love. So he's brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us. See, one of the things that was happening to the church of the Thessalonians is the, the Judaizers and the pagans in, in Thessalonica, which this is in Greece, and so if you know anything about Greek gods, they had gods for everything. And so the two major groups that were speaking bad of Paul was unconverted J Jews and the idol worshipers, the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-believers. And here's what they were saying. Paul doesn't love you. Paul doesn't even want to be here. What did Paul do at the first chance of trouble? He ran. And when, have you heard from Paul since then? No. So Paul was concerned that Timothy could get back, and they had bought the lie of the enemy that said, Paul really doesn't love you. What you've experienced is not real. Paul just faked you out. He was just a charlatan. He was selling you a, a bag of goods. And so Paul said, it was great for Timothy to bring news to us that you, as we, think kindly of us because we think kindly of you. They had maintained their love for their spiritual parents, and that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and that you long to see us just like we long to see you. For this reason, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you. So Paul says, as worried as I was, as fearful as I was, as concerned as I was, what I've heard from Timothy has brought comfort. And we know that there were times that Paul experienced beatings, shipwrecks, prison encounters, sometimes being chained to a Roman guard in prison without his freedom. 
And Paul said, even though I've gone through that kind of stress, I'm comforted by the fact that I've heard about your faith and your love and the fact that you still respect and love us and that you long to see us. And in fact, he says, for now we really live. Not just a temporary burst of energy, but Paul says, I can get back to the mission that I've been called to because I've, I've been distracted by concerns for you. So now we really live if your faith stands firm in the Lord. And then last, Paul's prayer for them. Wouldn't it be awesome to get a letter from the Apostle Paul saying he's praying for you? Well, Jesus is praying for you. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But we may not get a letter from Paul. we got 13 of them right here in the Bible. But they got a letter from Paul that said, I'm praying for you. So let's read the close of this passage. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which you rejoiced before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also did for you or do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul's saying, well, how can I thank God on your account? We've got the good news. In fact, the majority of prayers in the New Testament were from the Apostle Paul. There's times we see Jesus praying, but if you see a prayer in the New Testament, most of the time it's Paul. He prayed often for folks. And he says, I thank God. What thanks can we render? It's as if Paul wanted to make a payment on their account. When I was a kid, I remember going to department store with my parents and you didn't have credit cards back then you did but my parents didn't have any so they had an account at the at the store so if they went and bought me a new pair of pants or a new pair of shoes i remember she'd go up and have to sign for it and they'd put it in this little canister like you see at the banks but it would shoot i'd see it go all the way upstairs i thought that was the coolest thing i thought how can i ride in that well i'm not not small enough to ride in that they would send it back and she would go sometimes and say i need to pay something on my account that's what Paul is trying to do. He says, I am so grateful, I have so rejoiced in hearing from the Thessalonian believers that I want to know what, what can I do to render to God the thanks that is due. Well, here's the problem. You can't render to God something that's called grace. How were the Thessalonians, had they come to faith in Christ? They came through grace. It's not a result of works. It's nothing you pay for. It's nothing that you earn. It's that God, out of his unmerited favor, his unearned Grace has brought the Thessalonians to, to faith in Christ. So Paul says, what can I do to thank him? Well, there's really nothing. <laughs> but we night and day keep praying most earnestly and in, in overabundance beyond all measure that we may see your face and four things that Paul prays for. He says, we pray first of all for your spiritual growth. We pray that, that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul says, here's, here's what I'm praying for. I can't be there to do this in person, but there's things lacking in your faith. What's, what's Paul talking about? Paul wanted to bring them more than what he had ever brought them before. He didn't want to just remind them of things they had already heard, but he wanted to teach them, okay, you've been walking with Christ for a little while. Here's the next thing. You're no longer a spiritual infant. You're no longer a spiritual infant. Uh, teenager you may be ready to be a spiritual adult and so Paul wanted to bring up what is lacking in their faith and so that's exactly what chapters 4 and 5 do 
Paul said, that's my concern for you is that you grow. And some of the things he's going to talk to them about is the return of Christ and other things. So he says, I want to complete what is lacking in your faith. The same thing that a parent wants to do with a child as they grow that child up, as that child becomes not an infant anymore but a toddler, and then a 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, finally a teenager, wants to see that child continue to mature. You're not still feeding them what you fed them when they were babies. You're watching them mature and grow up. And so Paul wanted to teach them new things. So he prays for spiritual growth. He prays for open doors. Paul says, may our God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ direct our paths to you. Our Father. He's including the Thessalonians in it. He's saying, I'm praying to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that he would open doors. You ever pray for open doors? Here's what I hear a lot of times in Christian circles. It's kind of become a cliche. When God closes a door, look for a window. Well, it may be you're not supposed to look for a window. Maybe the reason God closed the door is because he wants you to wait and look, wait on another open door. Now, if a window opens and you know it's from God, go out the window. But I think sometimes we miss God because we're saying, oh, this door's closed. How can I get out of here? <laughs> There's a window. I'm going out the window. Instead of looking for a window, look for God. If God's closed the door, Ask God, okay, God, what are you up to? In the case of Paul, the door was closed. A hindrance was placed there, a roadblock. He couldn't go. And so he's asking, God, you've put it on my heart to get back to the Thessalonian believers. Move the roadblock. Get the door back open. And that's what Paul had prayed. And for you, how do you know what door to go through? Henry Blackley wrote a book called Experiencing God. One of the things he talks about in there is look and see where God is at work and join him there. That may be exactly what God wants to do in your life. Open a door where he's already at work. Third thing, not only he's praying for spiritual growth, he's praying for open doors. He's praying for increase in love. He says, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. Literally to be in excess. As you grow in faith, one of the things that can happen is the love of God is applied to your life. And so God wants you to show that to others. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 35, this is that upper room discourse. Jesus spent several chapters of the Gospel of John talking to his disciples in the upper room before he's going to be arrested. It's where he washed their feet. It's where they had the Last Supper. It's where he prayed for them. But here's one of the things he said. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So Paul's saying, first of all, you would abound in love for one another. You would increase in love for one another. He's talking about people within the church. But then he talks about and all people. Who would be included in all people? Even the persecutors, even the ones that were sending affliction. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would even love those people because it's very possible that because of your love, some of those people that are anti-God at this moment may come to faith in Christ. Students, the same thing can happen to you at school. Adults, the same thing can happen in your neighborhood, in your place of employment. Show God's love to people. It will draw people to God. So Paul says, I'm praying that you would abound and increase in your love for one another. And the fourth thing that he prays for is for a blameless walk, that you may, he may establish your hearts without blame, literally irreproachable or faultless, without blame. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means there's nothing on, on account that you could be blamed for. It means when you mess up, you confess it to the Lord, you make restitution to the people that you messed up with, and you get back to living. And that speaks volumes in the middle of a dark world. Folks, we live in a world that is very anti-Christian. And people make fun of believers. They make fun of people that are just religious. What they need to see is a genuine follower of Christ that shows the love of God 
not just to their friends, but even to the enemies. So Paul says, I'm praying you would abound and increase in your love and that you would have a blameless walk in holiness from our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul brings up the return of Christ. And he's going to teach them in, verses, in chapters 4 and 5 because some of the Thessalonian Christians have become concerned. We heard Jesus is coming back, but some of our loved ones have passed away. Did they miss out? Were they not genuine believers? What's going to happen to them? So Paul's going to teach them in chapters 4 and 5 that no, they hadn't missed out on a single thing. But Paul talks about those who live in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's who God, that's who Jesus is coming back with, with all his saints. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 4 next week. But what makes believers long for the return of Christ? The more you get to know Jesus, the deeper your walk with him is, the more you want to see him face to face. When I was a young believer, I thought, God, I hope you don't come back before I get married. hope you don't come back before I have children. hope you don't come back before I have this or do that. The longer you walk with Christ, you're like, God, I'm ready. A dear saint of God passed away this week, Julian Riddle. And the things I heard, I visited him with him myself, and other people said, the thing you could say about that man is, he was going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. He pastored Surfside Presbyterian Church for about 23 years and had retired about three years ago. He was a spiritual mentor to me, and he passed away on Thursday. He was a man who was ready, who was saying to God, I'm ready. I look forward to the return of Christ. For him, it wasn't... The return that's going to happen at some point in time, it was the return when he saw him face to face. Julian stepped out of earth and into heaven on Thursday. He went from laying in a hospital bed, couldn't get out, unresponsive for the most part, to walking streets of gold and worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Do you look forward to the return of Christ like that? If Jesus returned today for you, would it be an oops moment or a yay God moment? Paul wrote to Timothy, same author, writing to Timothy, the one he called a faithful brother and a faithful servant of God. Here's what he said in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I'll close with this. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing the crown of righteousness. Paul knew he was being poured out at this point by, as a drink offering. He knew his death was imminent. And he said, but I fought the good fight. Could you say the same thing? As we await the return of Christ, I've said this, I think, every Sunday. People have asked me because of COVID, do you think we're getting closer to the return of Christ? We're closer than we've ever been. <laughs> it could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be years down the road. But when that day comes, are you looking forward to it? There's a crown awaiting those who look forward to his appearing. Let's pray together.